0: So I'm going to talk about intergroup <laughs> contact, an idea that may possibly have been mentioned yesterday, I don't know, um, and I just want to emphasise at the beginning that I'm co-authoring this paper with two of my long-term collaborators, Katerina Schmidt and Al Ramayah, who used to be at Oxford but is now uh, at the Yale College of the National University of Singapore. Um, so what I'm going to try... To do today is to give you some idea of some of the research that we're doing in in two parts. The first part is going to focus on Northern Ireland, of which you will have heard, and the second part will focus on Oldham, of which you may well not have heard, especially if you're if you're not British. Uh, so, Northern Ireland, of course, is the site of a long-lasting conflict, which has more or less come to an end here. People actually talk about Northern Ireland today being characterised by peace, but not reconciliation. Reconciliation is something that is going to take a little bit longer. Some of the key aspects of Northern Ireland that I'm especially interested in are the degree of segregation, residential segregation, which itself drives educational segregation, Historically, there had also been occupational segregation Um, and the link between segregation and contact. And as a social psychologist, I'm particularly interested in this idea of whether you can help to promote reduction of conflict by bringing groups together uh, in positive ways. I don't actually do interventions, well I do sometimes, but I'm not talking about any of them today. So my work in Northern Ireland is not about interventions, it's not about occasions where we've tried to bring people together. Uh, I have been attacked, as many of the people who do this kind of work have been attacked, for uh, treating intergroup contact as some kind of idealised form of bringing people together. There's nothing whatsoever idealised about what we do. We study people where and when they have contact in the real world. We don't bring them together to that. We study um, the effects of it. I'm also very interested in identities, and I start from the position that people have multiple identities, and that one might well assume that religious, or as I prefer to call it, ethno-religious identity is a very strong identity in Northern Ireland. There might well be other identities. There might well be political identities. There might well be neighbourhood identities. There might well be superordinate identities like the identity of being Northern Irish. We've looked at a lot of those in our research too. They vary in strength. They vary across settings. And I'll show you some data that is relevant to that mainly because a few years ago people were beginning to argue uh, very optimistically that maybe these old identities of Catholic and Protestant were perhaps not as powerful as they used to be. Um, Our evidence doesn't really support that idea. Um, Then in the second part, I'll look at some conceptually parallel um, analyses which are taken from the town of Oldham in northeast England, which is on the edge of Manchester, And it was a scene, along with Burnley and Bradford, of quite serious civil disturbance in 2001. Um, And in case I forget to say this later, uh, I would like to to ask you, please, not to cite, uh, if you were interested enough, to cite any of the data from Oldham without checking with me because we are in the middle of a longitudinal study there. Uh, We're actually finding very positive results whether we were finding positive or negative or no results, I wouldn't want those results to be feeding back to the participants in my study, including the teachers and and the students in the schools. So um, I always follow that model of just asking people not to talk about that stuff yet. Here, the groups of course are not Catholics and Protestants, they're white British and Asian British students. And in both of my studies, uh, I can just as happily go off and talk about my research at conferences on intergroup relations that don't mention the word religion at all. I am not starting from the assumption that either of these conflicts is a religious conflict. I, I prefer to call them ethno-religious because the, the religious bits are bound up with lots of other things, including ethnicity and sometimes politics. Um, and, of course, draw together some summary points and some conclusions at the end, but I would like to invite you, I have no idea how yesterday went, I would like to invite you to interrupt me at any point that you wish to. Social psychologists are are mad, data-hungry individuals. Uh, We love our data, we love our analyses. That's not everybody's approach, uh, and some people have very different, complementary, deep, conceptual approaches. If you want to stop me, that's absolutely fine. Please do that. Okay, so... To give you my starting point for those of you who are not aware of the contact hypothesis, it comes from a very famous book by Gordon Allport, published in 1954, who proposed this idea that bringing members of different groups together under positive circumstances could promote more positive intergroup relations. And it was always... Emphasized from the very earliest days that merely bringing together one or two individuals was not enough. It's actually relatively straightforward to drag people into our laboratories. Actually, the hard bit is to drag them into the laboratories. Once we've gotten them, <coughs> it's relatively easy. We can promote positive relations between these groups in artificial surroundings. The hard bit is to get those positive results, to generalize, to generalize to views of the outgroup in general. That's the bit that I'm interested in. I'm not interested in changing attitudes towards isolated individuals. Um, over the years, people have studied a number of types of contact. When Gordon Orple wrote in 1954, the only kind of contact that was envisaged what was, was what was called direct contact, which is what most of us would mean by contact, direct Face to face contact, not just seeing the other group around, not just familiarity, not just occupying the same social space, but actually having some conversations, exchanging information (coughs) with people. And that might include measures of the quantity of contact, how often do you have this kind of conversation, but also of the quality of the contact. And it's fair to say that over the years we have really quite powerful evidence that it's the quality bit that matters. And the most important bit of the quality is having out-group friends. Now, this bit often gets misunderstood because people draw the conclusion from our work and the work of, of other colleagues. Uh, you know, I went to a talk and this guy said, if we can just all be friends with each other, everything will be fine. The world will be a peaceful place. That's not what we're saying. What we are saying is that of all the forms of contact that we have looked at, we and many others, cross-group friendships are the most effective. If you are going to design an intervention, this is the one that, that you'd put your money in. Um, more recently, people have identified a quite different conceptual form of contact which is called extended contact and unfortunately uh, just to kind of confuse the outsiders to our discipline people have given it three different names so it's sometimes called indirect (coughs) contact it's sometimes called vicarious contact Uh, and I think there are good reasons why we should call it extended contact they all mean the same thing the idea here is that People may themselves not have direct face to face contact with the out group, but they may know people in their in group who have contact with the out group. So it's contact at one degree of separation. And when I first read the paper by Steve Wright and his colleagues in 1997, I sort of thought, wow, what an amazing idea. I I can't believe it's true. And then, like a good empirical social psychologist, I started to do studies, and I kept finding that it really was true. It's a very powerful effect. And I think it's powerful not just in a statistical sense. It's powerful in that in areas of segregation, many of the kind of conflicts that we will be interested in at this sort of meeting are, are conflicts characterized by segregation between groups. Face-to-face direct contact is actually quite difficult. It just may not exist. It may be difficult to bring about. But people can have extended contacts, indirect contacts, of a variety of forms. And I'll show you some evidence of that too. So let's move to the, to the first um, part of the talk, the data from Northern Ireland. That's a map uh, of the geographical, of what's called the religious geography of uh, a part of Northern Ireland. I changed my title at the last minute from Belfast to Northern Ireland because I'm going to show you some, some data that's, that's beyond Belfast. If um, Northern Ireland were a, a well... If Belfast were a, uh, a well-integrated city, that map would be mostly yellow um, because yellow here is 40 to 60% of one group capital. As you can see, though, in fact, it's got great swathes of green and great swathes of red. And those represent segregated areas largely occupied by one group to the exclusion of the other. So that's the background of segregation that we're looking at. Our first study, we've been doing uh, research in Northern Ireland for uh, longer than I can actually remember, about 15 years, huge amounts of this research were done uh, with my former colleague, Ed Cairns who some of you may know Um, and it's a sad occasion but a a pleasant opportunity for me to acknowledge the role of Ed uh, who sadly died in in, um, February this year Um, but he was absolutely instrumental in this work and um, if I do my job many more papers will appear with his name um, before uh, the the next couple of years are out. So this was one of our studies in which uh, we did something a little bit different. We had done lots of national probability sample studies. Here we actually sought out neighbourhoods. We sought out particular kinds of neighbourhoods in six northern Irish towns. At this time we deliberately went out out of Belfast because we had just done our our earlier study in Belfast uh, which I'll talk to you in a minute. We took three mixed and three segregated neighbourhoods. And we did this because the segregated neighbourhoods are the ones that really offer the big challenge here. This is where people live in in microcosms that are are just inhabited by members of the in-group. They almost never encounter members of of the out-group, certainly in the neighbourhood. We took a random sample in each neighbourhood, we matched those (coughs) neighbourhoods as far as we could on relevant criteria, and we ended up, as you can see, with a a pretty large sample of roughly a 1,000 from each uh, ethno-religious group. So... One of the first things that we looked at in this study was we looked at multiple categorisation. As I've said, I don't want to argue that this is a simple religious conflict. Uh, it's actually much more a political conflict now. It's been a, between a group of people who want Northern Ireland to be part of the union of the United Kingdom. Um, those people happen to be Protestants. And a group of other people who largely want Northern Ireland to be part of the Republic of Ireland... who are primarily Catholics. There are other categorizations that are present too. We could look at national, uh, we could look at political. Now, the trouble is, as far as research is concerned, a number of the political categories overlap almost completely with the religious ones, not all of them. Um, But um, we accept that there are multiple categories and we've looked at these in in a number of, of our studies. So in this graphic... What we did is we looked at uh, how strongly people identified uh, with the different categories as a function of where they lived, where they they lived in segregated or mixed areas. And we looked at how strongly they identified with their ethno-religious group, with their national group, with the common in-group, which is Northern Ireland, uh, and with their neighbourhood. And as you can see, the two most important identities are the ones that you would expect still to be stronger, the Catholic-Protestant one and the Irish-British one, and the two less important (coughs) ones were the Northern Irish identity and the neighbourhood identity. The, the, The reason we did this was really just to respond to this claim that actually these old identities were no longer so important. We also looked at Uh, variations in the salience of identity. So how strongly do you feel Catholic or Protestant in various situations? And we did this with a a, a small experiment in which we asked people to think about um, different kinds of settings. That they might be in. Uh, and these range from things like spending time with your family to driving through an outgroup area, something that could be potentially quite frightening for people, uh, seeing a symbol of the outgroup, seeing a flag flying, watching the local news, seeing an outgroup football um, strip. This, uh, to, to people not familiar with Northern Ireland, might seem like an odd item, but actually, if you belong to one of these groups and you see the other group, wearing their, uh, the, the football team associated with the community, that's actually a very frightening experience, and seeing the in-group flag. And what you can see here is that salience is higher in almost all those situations for people living in segregated versus fixed communities. Of course, uh, we also looked at the experience of intergroup contact in those kind of areas. We found that in those mixed areas, as we had expected, there were more opportunities for contact, there was more actual contact, there were greater numbers of out-group friends, there was higher extended contact... But interestingly, there were also higher levels of negative experiences with the outgroup. And I think this is an important point. I'm regularly accused of being a, an optimist, and I admit completely to being an optimist. I'm in this business because I want to try and do some good, and I think intergroup contact is a way of doing that. But what we find in these data, and we also find in our Oldham data, which makes absolute sense, which is if you're in a situation where you're getting to know the outgroup, You get to know the outgroup. You get to know good things, and you also get to know bad things. And you get exactly the same thing when you do studies on students in college dorms. You know, your most likely best friend is likely to be the person who lives next door to you or on the same corridor of the Hall of Residence. Your most likely most obnoxious person is also likely to live close to you because you have to learn about them. You have to find out just how obnoxious they are. You can only do that through propinquity. So in the first uh, real bit of data that I'll, I'll show you, we tested a very complicated model. I thought I'd show you this one early just to wake you up. Um, so what we're, we're doing here is we're looking at a number of independent variables. These are the predictor variables. We're looking at what kind of neighborhood people live in. We're looking at how much direct contact they have and we're looking at how much extended contact they have. Then we're looking at mediators. These are the psychological processes by which we think the predictor has an effect on the outcomes. And we're looking at one moderator, and this moderator is a qualifying variable. We're going to have a look at how our results are affected by <coughs> the strength of people's religious identity. How strongly do you feel Catholic or Protestant, and how much of an effect is that having on the model that we showed? And the dependent variable in these data is in-group bias. This is the extent to which you prefer the in-group, your ethno-religious community, over the out-group. I'm going to show you through the course of my talk lots of other variables, and this is the the one we're going to look at first. So what we're testing here is a causal model, and um, it's going to go from left to right, from the kind of neighborhood you live in, which we think will predict contact, which we think will have its effect through these mediators, distinctiveness threat, is the threat posed to your group by people thinking that the outgroup is too similar to your group. And this, again, may surprise some people. Uh, if you work from traditional, mainly North American studies of interpersonal behaviour, telling people that they're similar to each other is a good thing. Most of us are friends with people who are similar to us. If you do this at the group level, you may well actually threaten people's sense of psychological distinctiveness. And that's something that most groups have a desire to have. And we've also looked at threat to esteem the the extent to which you can feel positive about your group and the extent to which that may be threatened by members of our groups. I will emphasize that these are cross sectional data, but I'm going to follow them up later on with some longitudinal data. Our model showed, indeed, that the type of neighbourhood determines uh, the extent of both direct and extended contact, uh, also has a direct effect on one kind of threat and on bias. The bit that we're interested in is these mediating effects from contact to bias and uh, and from both direct and from extended contact. And what you can see uh, in that figure is that Sorry, this is really so small on my little monitor here. What you can see is that you can explain a reasonable percentage of the variance in your dependent variable. And you can do it by these set of variables on the left. And they're working in the same way that you would expect them to work. Both direct contact and extended contact have negative effects on bias. The more contact you have, the less bias. The final part of uh, the model is we look at the effect of threat, and as you would expect... Threat is positively associated with bias. But if you can get contact to drive some of these threats, then contact reduces the threat and thereby reduces the effect of threat on bias. And the last bit of this model is we say, what effect does group identification have? Does this model still work for people who are highly identified with their groups? And what we do here is we moderate. These last two parts in the model, we say how strong is that relationship between threat and bias for people who are low and high in terms of identifying with their subgroup. And you find a considerably higher relationship for the people who highly identify with their group. If you highly identify with your religious group, then when you are threatened, you respond with bias. And those are the people that one needs to intervene with. And interestingly, we we ran a whole series of analyses. These involve quite complicated two- and three-way moderation effects. I decided they're too complicated to show you. But the interesting thing is most of our effects are actually stronger for people who are more identified. So it shows that contact can have precisely the effect that we want it to have for those people who are in most need of it. And that's a, a slightly odd effect, but it's entirely consistent with other work that shows contact has a stronger effect with high authoritarians than lower authoritarians and it has a higher effect with people who are who are high in something called social dominance orientation. They like to see the world organised into hierarchies. So in a, it, it, we can explain this kind of effect by saying contact is most powerful for those people who have most prejudice to be dealt with and that makes just, quite just good just sense. Can you, can you, can you yeah
1: the direct effect you're showing here um, while controlling for the mediated effect? Or of course. Of yeah. course?
0: So, so the indirect effect are pretty weak. The indirect? I mean, so the direct I mean, the direct
1: effect from direct contact and extended contact are much stronger than the mediated effect through the two kinds of flow.
0: In this... In this case, um, I have the table of the size uh, of the effects in front of me, so I can't tell you the relative <clears throat> sizes I can only tell you that they're both significant. So second study we did, um, we tried to replicate some of these results, uh, and this time we did a longitudinal study, and a longitudinal study has some advantages, some obvious advantages over a cross-sectional study. Um, one of which is we can be a little bit surer of the causal order. Does contact lead to bias or does bias lead to contact? Unfortunately, you can only deal with so much of these things because you, what you also get is you get a, a self-selection bias that you would expect certain kinds of people to live in one kind of neighbourhood and certain kinds of people to live in another kind of neighbourhood. Uh, this is something that, that I've just come back from this Canadian Political Science Association. and they, they, Any political scientists here? No, uh, uh, yes, hello, hello, hello. Well, they're very, very interested in endogeneity. Maybe, you know, we just call it you know, the weaknesses of cross-sectional design. But it's basically the question of, well, how do you know which is chicken and which is egg? And one of the ways we deal with this is through longitudinal data, which doesn't deal with all the problems. And another way we deal with it is through experiments. The trouble is with experiments, and I still do experiments, is you can't do experiments that really mimic what it's like to live in a segregated sectarian area of Northern Ireland. And if you think you can, I challenge you to show me how you can. You can simulate so much, you know. And so what I try and do is I try and triangulate. I use a whole variety of these methods. What is important is that we can show, when we look at the segregated and the mixed areas separately, we can still show effects of contact. And I think that's quite a good riposte to the endogeneity or, or self-selection effect. So here, we are collecting data in Belfast. We've recruited people, uh, again, sample of about 1,000 adults from four different areas, chosen to be predominantly Catholic or predominantly Protestant uh, or mixed. And the longitudinal part of this data, uh, we've captured just under half the respondents one year later, and that's typical. You lose people along the way in some of the studies in the literature. You lose so many people that you begin to think it must be dangerous to take part in social psychological studies. You (laughs) die en route. Um, But but actually we're still left with a pretty good sized sample, and we do all sorts of careful tests to make sure that the people who are left in the sample are not different from the people who dropped out of the sample, and they're not. So what we're looking at here is a number of variables. Uh, We're looking at cross-group friendship. We're looking at negative contact. We're looking at strength of religious identification. And on the dependent (coughs) variable side, we're looking at in-group bias and social distance. And here, because we have only four neighbourhoods, uh, those methodologists in the in the audience will know that you know, ideally you would be doing a multi-level analysis with something like this you'd have people nested in neighbourhoods, you can't do that when you only have four neighbourhoods and you can't have loads more neighbourhoods unless you have loads more money, but we've done that later in some of our other research so we've, we've used the statistical control here for uh, the fact that the percentage of outgroup members varies in these neighbourhoods so Uh, this is a a lied actually I said that the first one was the most complicated this is the most complicated bit Um, so this just gives you an an idea of what you can do with the longitudinal data you can identify (coughs) variables of key interest, cross group friendship, negative contact strength of religious identification bias and social distance you measure them at time one and then you look at the relationship between time one and time two, controlling for all the other variables when you do that uh, first of all, you pick out these autoregressive paths, the association between the same variable measured over time. But uh, that's just something we have to do, but we can make that disappear because it gets in the way. Uh, and these come, these come furiously fast, so I'll show you those again. So what we're looking here is the effect of contact at time 1 on variables at time 2. And as you can see, uh, contact is, if, if it's positive, cross-group friendship is having negative effects on uh, variables at time 2 if it's negative contact it's having positive effects on those kind of biased social distance measures at time 2 so that's evidence that is consistent with the the contact hypothesis religious identification also has a small uh, but positive effect the more strongly you identify with your group the more biased you are towards people I want to come later to some evidence <coughs> that reminds us that identification isn't all bad. One can live in this kind of world and very easily get into the Richard Dawkins mode. Richard's a fellow of my college, but I don't think I can see him anywhere. Uh, so he always gives me a and hard he did time. Invite uh, he did, he did, yeah. He, he spoke all the time at the last conference, yes, I remember. <laughs> 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 um, uh, actually, I'll tell you a funny story about Richard. I, I nearly, I stopped in my tracks in college the other day because I thought I saw him walking towards the chapel. He walked he walked <laughs> underneath this arch. I said, Richard, how am I seeing things? He said, Heading towards the chapel, he said, the bike sheds. <laughs> <laughs> so people like Richard tend to get into this mode of thinking religion bad. And I don't want to fall into that trap. I mean, my own view is that, you know, something we can discuss at much greater length is religion is a source of all sorts of positive things as well as, in some people, some bad things. And so is in group membership. People who are strongly identified with Manchester United or Oxford University or anything else may also be those people who trash Arsenal coaches or trash Cambridge University facilities People who are strongly identified with groups sometimes misbehave. That doesn't mean that identity is a bad thing. Interestingly, we also get this reverse effect. And again, just because I'm a born-again contact theorist doesn't mean that I want to deny reverse effects. You get people who have stronger bias at time one, who have more negative contact at time two, and who have fewer cross-group friendships at time two. You would expect that in the real world, it's reasonable to expect bi-directional effects. If, however, you want to use contact as an intervention, all that you need to be doing is showing these two effects here. That if you can promote cross-group friendship, you can drive down bias and you can drive down social distance. Social distance being your willingness to get close and intimate without group members uh, uh, as opposed to holding them at a distance. And social distance itself had uh, was associated with none of those self-selection biases. We also showed uh, what I think is a really neat effect in these longitudinal data, and this is something called the secondary transfer effect, which Tom Pettigrew, who I always think of as the grand old man of, of contact theory, uh, he was the first one to name it thus. And this is the idea... Uh, remember in economics, people used to talk about trickle down effects. Well, this is a trickle down effect of, uh, of contact. It's the idea that contact with one outgroup can promote more positive views of other unconnected outgroups. So, what we tested in this data set with our Northern Irish adults, we tested whether contact with the ethno religious outgroup, so Catholics having contact with Protestants, Protestants having contact with Catholics, whether that would, over time, change people's attitudes to a completely unconnected group, racial minorities. There are very few of them in Northern Ireland, but there have actually been a number of cases of quite severe hostile attacks on them. And we, to do that properly, statistically, we need to control for attitude to the ethno-religious outgroup at Taiwan, for... Uh, Contact with and attitude to the racial minorities at Taiwan. And when we do that, we can show that neighborhood contact with the primary group, the religious outgroup, has a direct effect. The more positive you are um, about, uh, sorry, the, the more contact you have with the religious outgroup time Taiwan, the more positive uh, your attitude to racial minorities. Also, the more positive your attitude to the ethno religious outgroup. And there is a mediated path. Come to view your ethno-religious outgroup more positively, and you'll also come to a more positive attitude towards that ethnic minority. That effect is not being mediated in this data set by a change in how you view your own group. I'll show you some data in the second half of the study uh, on Oldham, uh, where we do find some evidence for that path. So... I think this is pretty profound evidence in support of intergroup contact. You're showing the effect longitudinally and you're showing that you get more bangs for your buck with contact than people might have reckoned because you're not only changing attitudes towards the target outgroup but also towards these secondary outgroups as well. We've also shown um, effects on support for violence. Now, support for violence is arguably a much more important variable than merely in-group bias or favourable attitudes to the in-group and less favourable attitudes towards the out-group. We've done a study. We unfortunately don't have these data uh, longitudinally. We only have them from the second wave of this data set. We looked at various measures of contact, identification and so on. And... And I really just want to focus here on the support for political violence. So these are people endorsing quite strong statements, and I can show you later exactly what those statements are, that that they support the in-group using political violence under some circumstances. And we're able to show uh, that you can predict support for violence from things like strength of identification, but that you get this nice negative effect The more cross-group friends you have, the lower your support for that violence. And I'm not really interested in those other effects primarily now. I wanted to just show you that we can also get our effects on support for violence. And we've replicated those data in a second data set where we made our task even tougher. We said, can we show this contact effect if we control For SDO, for social dominance orientation, this is an ideology of inequality that we know is associated with these kind of outcomes. So we're going to measure it, control for it. Can we still show an effect for cross-group friendships? Yes, we can. There is an effect uh, for other variables, but the way we do these analyses, we're showing this effect for cross-group friendship while statistically controlling for any other variables in the model. Some evidence for extended contact from Northern Ireland. Is it really the case that even if I know no out-group members, that if I know some in-group members who have positive, close relationships with out-group members, that that might have an impact on my levels of prejudice? Um, It is the case, and we showed that first... uh, in uh, a study published in 2004 with Stefania Paolini, former graduate student, as the first author. These data come from Catholic and Protestant students. We normally apologise in social psychology for ever using students. We always say to them it's much more preferable to use real people. Uh, (laughs) But in Northern Ireland, students are actually very interesting because they go from almost exclusively segregated primary and secondary schools to a desegregated university. So we decided that was a perfectly reputable reason for for looking at students. And we, in fact, found evidence for this model and replicated this evidence on a probability sample. But I'm just showing you the, the evidence from the students. We measure the number of direct friends they have, and we measure the number of indirect friends they have. If you're a Catholic, how many Catholic people do you know who have a Protestant friend? We're measuring their prejudice and their tendency to see the outgroup as variable rather than homogeneous. And we're arguing that these effects will be mediated by intergroup anxiety. The more contact you have, the less anxious you will be uh, about the outgroup. And we're able to show direct and mediated effects of both types of contact on both outcomes. The key bit for us today is that we can show. An effect of indirect friends controlling for direct friends it's mediated in part by reduced anxiety. So even extended contact is having positive effects here. We know that it works. We've published a number of studies on it. We know that it works primarily by changing norms. It changes people's norms of how it is appropriate for the in-group to behave towards the out-group. And interestingly and logically, extended contact, which seems like quite a mild form of contact, is most effective for those people who don't have direct contact. It's like social psychology researchers do this this work in in attitudes on um, some of Russell Fazio's work is is this kind of stuff, which he calls direct experience with the attitude object. So you need to taste your 7-Up or your Diet Coke really know what it's like. I never understood these things until I read their chapter, but it explains why when you go to supermarkets, people give you free samples. I thought they gave me free samples because they liked me. They're giving you free samples because you then taste their product. You're over the first threshold. Now, you can't always do that in, in uh, intergroup relations, but if you can do it, even more uh, effect. Extended contact is Especially effective for those people who haven't gone over the threshold, who haven't tasted the product, who haven't met face to face with the out group. Um, we've most recently tested a, a really exciting new development uh, of extended contact. We've moved to a whole, new, literally, a whole new level. We've moved to the neighbourhood level. And we're looking at something that we call the contextual effect of intergroup contact. We're looking at whether to two individuals who we pick at random who have the same individual level of contact but live in different areas and those different areas have different mean levels of contact. We're looking at whether the neighborhood itself has an effect over and above the individual level of contact. If it did, this would be really powerful, impressive evidence that contact, contrary to what some of its critics say, is, is a cosmetic interpersonal <coughs> device, it would be evidence that contact can really work on a more macro level. We've actually got evidence for this from six cross-sectional data sets and two longitudinal data sets. So we wanted to make sure we were right before we try and publish this stuff. I'm just going to show you the, the data from Northern Ireland. This is part uh, of an amazing, uh, amazing because it's huge and ambitious and complicated, five-year longitudinal study where we're tracking kids through every grade in secondary school in Northern Ireland. And we've got uh, over nearly 4,000 year eight students. We've got them from 51 secondary schools. And Ah, uh, oh, we are, Rachel. There's the, there's the Bill Gates effect. There's always, there's always uh, Bill Great Gates doesn't like my math, so he, he always does. This is Rachel who presented all, who, who prepared all these amazing PowerPoints. And no matter how hard we work, there's always one that gets away. Uh, so what this effect is showing is at the individual level, which is the, the area that social psychologists mostly work at, and at the context level so in the neighbourhood controlling for these effects. What happens? You get effects of contact at both levels, and they're in the direction that you would want. The contextual effect is computed by saying, is this effect stronger than this effect? And it is. It really matters which area you live in uh, controlling for your individual level. Are we even gone a step beyond that uh, so far in cross-sectional data we've tested the idea that those schools in which people have more contact might also be those schools in which there are more tolerant social norms and we find that that is indeed the case and you can partly predict the level of prejudice at the context level by regressing prejudice on both contact and the norms. Part of the effect of contact is that those schools which have higher levels of contact are also those schools that have more tolerant norms. Think about that for a second. If that's really the case, and you can promote more contact throughout the schools of Northern Ireland, which is actually being done, it's being done through something called a shared education programme, which is proceeding with stealth, so as not to offend the members of some... And religious hierarchies and it's proceeding as an alternative to integrated education which for political reasons some people are, are not prepared to, to decide on for the future of Northern Ireland. Kids from the two different kinds of schools get to meet each other and every time they meet each other they model intergroup contact for each other. I recently went and did a, a, a piece of outreach work for Oxford University encouraging kids from schools to apply to Oxford and These schools now work together. So instead of getting me to come twice, I go once and I meet the sixth formers from both schools having a lesson together. I heard a very funny story about the shared education program when I was there, uh, which was supporting the idea that the youngsters really are getting together and are getting close. And um, I can't remember which, whether it was the female or the male who was the Catholic or the Protestant, but this young couple had got together and as the head teacher reported to me, Yes, and we've had our first shared, shared education baby. Um, so, so far, uh, we've toyed with the idea that, that maybe social identification is a bad thing, and we should, it is associated with bias, it's associated with lower levels of contact. I want to, just as a final bit of data on the, the Northern Irish side of things, I want to just point out. Um, that there there are real positive benefits of, of in group membership as well. Just think of yourself and, and think of the groups that you belong to and why you belong to those kind of groups. Um, this is uh, time one data uh, from our um, six six town no from our four uh, town study. Um, what we've tried to do here is we've tried to predict things like self-esteem and life satisfaction, which are highly correlated in this sample, from whether you have cross-group friends, whether you have any negative contact with the out-group, whether you feel that you get support from religious in-group members, uh, the number of in-group religious in-group friends you have, and and from a religiosity proxy, which is um, the idea that um, but it's a simple measure about you know, how often you attend religious services. And the interesting thing is, we can predict that. And most impressive, I think, is that having cross group friendships has a positive effect on your life satisfaction and self esteem. Interestingly, having in group friends doesn't. Um, Richard Dawkins won't like that, but going to, <laughs> to church also does. Uh, and, and having support from your input does too. So there's a, there is some positive um, uh, underside to, to religion and to strength of group membership here too. Okay, I, I'm not going to skip over that summary. And <coughs> I'm going to just talk to you briefly um, about some of the findings from, from Oldham. And we've been at. Yes? Yes, I'm
1: sorry, I'm, for those things, I'm sorry. I won't be able to hear this, but I wanted to ask you something.
0: Um, in Berlin, in the 1930s, and in the Lebanese neighborhoods I was in, there are very few mixed neighborhoods, in but there were some. There seems to be a reversal of the things you're talking about. That is, under extreme conflict situations, these direct contacts all of a sudden become sort of enemy within. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether you've considered that. And and it can ratchet up to be even more terrible yeah, and I remember people shooting at their neighbours. Yeah, anyone who does work on intergroup contact gets confronted with these kind of questions. You know, the one I've, I've looked at more carefully is uh, ex-Yugoslavia rather than, than, than Lebanon. People say, "Well, you know, how can this be true given that neighbour killed neighbour um, in, in ex-Yugoslavia?" I don't know. Evid- I don't know evidence from Northern Ireland that, that really sort of makes that, that point. I have never, ever claimed it's a magic bullet. I, I think things can happen in societies that unravel, against which we are practically powerless. And, and I, was, I knew somebody would ask the question, because somebody always <coughs> does, and I was cycling in this morning, and I, I sort of thought, um, you know, I've got to try and find the, the, the perfect analogy for it. And I think it would be something like, um, somebody takes statins for high cholesterol, um, most men over fifty-five seem to end up taking them these days. Somebody's taking statins for high cholesterol, and then they turn around ten minutes late, ten years later, and say, "God damn it! Now I'm dying of cancer. Then you made me take those statins." A, it doesn't mean the statins cause the cancer, and B, it doesn't make the statins any less effective against cholesterol because they can't prevent cancer. Contact can do some things, but it's not a golden bullet. You know, when Milosevic comes along what on earth are you supposed to do? I can actually give you evidence from ex-Yugoslavia of, of, of and I've written about this of neighbours risking life and limb to rescue former neighbours. So this did happen as well as those cases of neighbours turning against former neighbours. So it happens and the, you know these are terribly complicated as you well know these are terribly complicated situations but I think they unravel in part and people attack their neighbours because A, their neighbours are proximal, so they're easy targets, and B, in some of these situations, Rwanda being another case in part, you know, what on earth are you supposed to do if you are threatened and your family is threatened if you don't take part in an attack on the outgroup tomorrow? All the contact in the world isn't going to help you there. But I'm suggesting something that I... I, which I would... Would love to have some research on something more insidious. That under extreme conditions of conflict, the the very fact that you have increased contacts makes the probability of having an enemy that you don't know is really an enemy greater. So that you begin to suspect everyone around you, whereas people in segregated neighborhoods wouldn't. They'd basically say, okay, we can hunker down. And so I'm I'm wondering if there that insidious Thing. I've, I've seen it personally, but yeah. it's only anecdotal. Yeah, no, I, I think it's an interesting question. I don't have any any evidence on it, uh, and I, I think that's a, a sort of side effect risk uh, of, of contact. And it's it's and my own view is we shouldn't go down the road of segregation wherever we are, uh, despite those kind of potential risks. I think the, the potential risks that come from segregation are much, much greater, whether in Northern Ireland or, or whether in Oldham or whether in Lebanon. I'm going to take one more question, then I'm going to give <coughs> Oldham its ten minutes of paper. I,
1: I just wanted to say something in addition to that, which is it very much depends on the way in which the contact between neighbours is, as it were, constructed. Because if it's mostly on something which, which unifies its identification, then it may be robust against sort of conditions such as being um, you know, of, of extreme conflict. But let's recall that many neighbourhoods and many relations with neighbours are very ambivalent. Mm. You manage to have a notice of ending, an awful lot of stuff is either broken, shuffled on one side, dealt with under ordinary conditions, and as soon as those conditions become extraordinary, then the stabilization and the sort of will
0: break down and the ambivalence will explode. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, And we have to do What actually the former government of this country was very interested in doing, the current one doesn't seem remotely interested in doing, is building those kind of neighbourhoods, particularly between people of different ethnic groups. That's why the extended contact is so important, because when you watch your... I mean, I just cycled home to my house last, last night, and I, I come through one rather mixed estate... Um, uh, and socioeconomically, not such a great area of town. And I just watched this really positive interaction between a black guy who came out of one house and a white woman who came out of the other, and they were just joking and chatting about their their kids. When I watched that, or their neighbors watched that, I just think that's such a positive, empowering experience. And the more we create the situations where those things will happen, the more sustainable it will be. I'm not sure I'd ever want to say that we will be able to, to produce neighbourhoods and interactions and relationships that are so strong that they can resist a Milosevic uh, or, or a, um, a Rwanda-style conflagration. I think that's asking a, a huge amount. Good We've Just got a few minutes for discussion. Um, c- could I just start by just mentioning in Belgrade? it always strikes
1: me that some of the most Difficult segregated areas are very traditional working class
0: areas.
2: So, how far did you, did you look at just the effect of social class?
0: Yeah, yeah. Good, good question. We did, we've um, deliberately um, included middle class areas as well as yes. working class areas, and we control for social class um, yes. in, in, all those, in, in all those statistical models. We compare for the major demographic variables mm-hmm. age, um, income, socioeconomic status, and so on. Yes. Right. Hey, can, I, can I just follow up on that? do Yes. You find a difference? Is it, other studies find that males, lower income, tend to be more hostile. Yeah. Did you guys uh, th- that's some? that's not a particular focus of our work. I, I bet it's there, but it's just not something I'm particularly interested in. I mean, you're you're so busy trying to test these causal models. You know, the, the, the people who believe in social dominance orientation, for example, they find men are higher in social dominance orientation. I expect it's there it's not really a focus it's it's tucked away in in footnotes of, uh, of some of the studies it's really not um, not what we are primarily interested in yes
1: okay. uh, first of all just th- thanks for a very interesting presentation And I think that you know this work and the work you've done in the past I mean you've got a very robust finding showing that contact can be very uh, uh, b- b- beneficial uh, uh, Process in in, in conflicts, intergroup conflicts, and religious conflicts. So, um, given everything I said, I want I want to try and, and challenge it in, in two or mm. three different ways. Um, part of it is related to your to this presentation, and part of it are questions I wanted to ask you for some time. So, <laughs> the uh, first one is m- maybe easier because it, it talks to the to the last study that you presented, which was fantastic. And and we recently done some work on, on contact motivation.
0: Because motivation. When, motivation. Mm. Because when
1: you come from a place like Israel and there's you know Israelis and Palestinians and and they have the opportunity to communicate and to talk, but they don't want to. Mm-hmm. And then even if you take these fantastic results and you show that contact can really be a positive mm-hmm. uh, 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 process for promoting intergroup reconciliation and everything, they don't want to. Do that. Mm. And I was quite surprised by. a uh, 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 I wouldn't say the lack of studies, but not so many studies are talking about this issue. And given the fact that that contact is such a powerful process, I was wondering why do you think that it happens? Not so many scholars deal with the question of how do you move people to actually be motivated to communicate with the other it's, it's,
0: side. Can I, can, then, I, can I stop you after the first question? Because I, I have a t- dreadful memory. I will have forgotten the first question, which is a really good question. Though so I have over enough trouble understanding the motivations of the people in my studies, let alone understanding the motivations of the scholars. Um, I, I think it's a really good question. There's a guy called Tyrone Foreman. Have you come across him? He's <laughs> a sociologist. <laughs> uh, uh, and he's, uh, he's interested in indifference as well. And and it's actually a different kind of response. It's not old-style ethnocentrism, we hate them. It's we don't care about them. And and actually, we've done some follow-up studies where we've, we've actually looked at why people don't sit. Now, because we've done our work unobtrusively, you can't match up where people actually sit with the questionnaires that they completed but so we got people to do a a scenario study you know we said if you came to lunch one day and and it was very busy the only place free was a table with a bunch of Asian kids if you're a white kid or white kids if you're Asian how likely would you be to sit there almost all of them are relatively unlikely to sit there and then you can ask them questions and we've actually got some longitudinal data in there so we can predict their decisions at time too based on things like their norms, their experience of contact and so on. And we find that actually indifference is really quite important. They're just not interested. And, yeah, you know, that's sad, but it's not as bad as we hate them, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. We can, I'm, <laughs> okay. not, I'm yeah. serious. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. Because, uh, but when, pe- I talk, when I presented my data
1: yesterday, one of the things I said is it, it, that, that it's it's better to have people, not hate them, but to, to, to be angry than being, you know, indifference. Or, you well, know, I think, totally it's, it's, I think it's, it's, it's... It's a question.
0: I think it's good for people... Good. I think it's, there are positive attributes of being angry for minority group members who need to... You know, Mars work, who this need my, this to... This was my second prom, Okay. <laughs> who, who need to promote... Uh, action for change. And I do think that's an issue in some, some of these places. I think that's much less of an issue for contemporary Northern Ireland and, and for contemporary Britain. These kids need to mix with each other. Mm-hmm. They will need to mix with each other uh, in, in organisations. One of the teachers, I, I went to address the teachers of the two schools uh, in, in our most exciting merger, where a, a totally white school and a totally Asian school next October, about to be poured into one new building. And we're studying them. We've studied them uh, from the baseline of separate schools and we follow them on. There's one teacher, um, you probably can remember this, Rachel, that one teacher put his hand up. He was himself Asian. He said, he said well, look, these kids live in segregated neighbourhoods. They come to school for a few years of their life and then they go back to their segregated neighbourhoods. What's the point of mixing for five years? And... I said to him, what do you teach, sir? And he said, mathematics. I said, when I was 14, you made me study trigonometry, and I hated trigonometry. I hated maths. But I could see now that it probably was a useful thing for you to have taught me. The experience... um, Janet Schofield is a wonderful scholar who used to do some of the early work on, on mixing in desegregated American schools. And she argues that a part of the positive outcome isn't to be found in changing attitudes but it's actually to be found in that sort of reduction of anxiety that reduction of threat that you can just get along with each other and, and you know we are holding the bar high we want people to have positive attitudes we want people to have friends I even want them to have lunch together um, so the, but your second question yes the, I mean you know the really million dollar question in there in the contact literature at the moment and I, I'm not studying it Um, because I'm just too busy studying other things, but it's for areas where, you know, particularly this would be true in North America, you know, where they, without a shadow of doubt, African Americans are still hugely discriminated against in everything from healthcare to, to education to occupational status. How do you bring blacks and whites together in ways that will reduce the prejudice of whites, will get those whites to take the perspective of blacks and support their demands for collective action and will not thwart the attempts of the blacks for the pursuit of social justice themselves. To do all that simultaneously nobody's yet managed. I'm sure you will. You already no, no did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well then we talk about that. <laughs> Just a, a brief thing, I was wondering insofar as uh, religious Identification is a factor in these uh, group identifications, and uh, I agree with you that it's not as big as it's often maintained. I was wondering, in the Irish case, whether the um, collapse in identification that's been caused by the clerical abuse scandals throughout—I Ireland, I, I, I know in the south very dramatically—I don't know about the north—whether so mm-hmm. that's likely to have an effect, uh, or, is it, or has had any kind of effect, on the strength of the identification in in the groups and possibly therefore under the contact thing. It's a really interesting question. I haven't uh, I haven't got any evidence mm-hmm. from my own data of that collapse of identification. Um, and of course, you know, it, the way I'm studying it it's not a purely religious no, identification. No, it's an ethno religious so I uh, you know I so think even so far it, as a theme, you, it feeds you yeah. yeah. it some I th- I guess I'm going to duck the question by saying I don't think it would have an effect. I think, I think yeah. you know it's a completely different kind of thing. For years and years, people in, in almost any Catholic country have somehow managed to separate these two things and to continue to go to Mass on a Sunday while they know that these things are happening in, in, uh, in a number of but churches and schools. Uh, actually stopping, I mean. It's actually stopping people going yeah. to... Is it? Yeah. Well, then that that is I mean, potentially yeah. Think. Then that's potentially a really interesting question. Uh, I mean, my my current focus for data collection in Northern Ireland is um, is all these younger kids, um, mm. you know, tracking them through school. Um, so, I mean, what I would be in a position to do is look at that in five years' time and tell you whether we see any kind of impact, whether we'd see it in those kids. I suspect their mums and dads are still kicking them out of the house to Mass on a, on a Sunday. But maybe not. Maybe we'd see it even People there. People in the South do comment that there's a parting of the ways between Irish nationalism and Catholicism, which, of course, used to be almost identical. Yeah. And that could have an effect. Yeah. Both, but, of course, that you might still get the identity. Yeah.
1: Uh, anybody? Yes, any other? yes. yes, yes. The back.
2: Um, thank you very much for the presentation. Yeah. Um, just the one comment and one question if I may. I certainly can corroborate this experientially um, uh, and anecdotally, not scientifically but growing up in Toronto um, where uh, the, the idea of an in-group and an out-group, these terms just wouldn't have made sense because it's so mixed mm. that um, I mean, I mean, there's no generic Canadian there is no, um, in, in those type of, of, of settings and so um, at that point of, of mixing, you, you, the terminology just disappears, actually. It, it annihilates itself, in a sense. But my, my question would be, um, I mean, this, this seems really patently true, the, the, the more uh, intuitively true. And it's great that there are the statistics to back it up. Uh, my question would be if, if one if sh- couldn't look at this not as, as a graph going up, 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 the more contact, uh, uh, the better um, um, uh, perceptions, but it, more like a bell curve. That, and on one side of the bell would be, if you have absolutely no contact and no knowledge, obviously, <laughs> it's on it's tautology, but you don't have any ideas about the other, you don't have any negative ideas. And then, uh, then on, on the other side, uh, if, if you're living within this group, but you also don't have much contact with them, but they're there, um, then it can be very, very um, negative. And your findings are in the middle if you're living with them and you have a lot of contact. And the reason I say this is because historically, this gentleman brought, brought up a few examples, but historically, where you find large concentrations of other groups, you also often find the highest incidence. And it's not just because of proximity, it's because of competition, mm-hmm. because of all. Uh, one, one prime example would be the pale of settlement in Russia. Mm-hmm. So if you look at where the Nazis invaded, the highest level of collaboration um, of locals, Ukraine, Lithuania, why? Because that was also the highest concentrations of Jewish populations, yeah. and 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 other countries, for Holland, Norway, etc. Very very low um, uh, densities, very very low
0: uh, collaboration. So there seems to be a direct uh, effect. Really, can I? talk to you after to get some references. That, that's really interesting. So I've just come back from your country actually, the Canadian Poli- Political Science Association, and people were talking about V. O. Key's classic study on class and southern politics, you know, highest voter turnout is the whites in areas <coughs> with the highest number of what were then called Negroes. I've always made a fundamental distinction between the mere proportion of outgroup members in the unit, whether it's the school or the neighborhood or the region or the country, and having contact. So I'm having a personal intellectual battle at the moment with Robert Putnam. Robert Putnam, as you probably know, published this paper in 2007 arguing that diversity drives down distrust. We've got new data that measures all the variables that you would need to measure to test his model, which he didn't measure. And we can show that diversity itself does sometimes have a negative effect on trust, especially neighbourhood trust. And it comes through, sometimes, through threat, just as you said, there's threat, there's competition for resources. But if you add contact to the model, which he doesn't do, then neighbourhood diversity also offers the opportunity for contact. And if you take up that opportunity for contact, you drive down threat and you promote more positive attitudes. Your first question began essentially with the idea of super-diversity. Uh, my friend Steve Vertovec I don't know if you've come across him he's an anthropologist he's created this word and it's it's used for for cities and for regions of cities in in the world where you know like you might take an area of uh, of London with 150 different um, categories there. I would challenge your view that it doesn't matter anymore I mean it, it maybe it maybe you reach levels of super diversity in in Toronto or some some areas of Toronto but our evidence is still well people still have a lot of strong ideas about some groups. And, of course, it's, again, mediated by whether you come into contact with those groups. I'm sure there is a nice upper-middle-class white area of Toronto where where people don't face diversity other than when they go to Chinese restaurants and so on. That's the way it normally works out. So for me, diversity, yes, can be a bad thing, but diversity's effects are mediated uh, and attenuated by contact. Right, I'm afraid we must draw to a close because it's coffee time and uh, this could go on. I mean, and that's a great tribute to what we've been talking about. So thank you very much.